Welcome to episode 2074 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs, and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm better than the Arizona Diamondbacks. Mm, man, mm. not going great for those guys. It yeah. is not. <laughs> we'll talk about that because we did an ALCS update last time, yeah. and the NLCS had yet to start at that point. So now we can do an NLCS update because there's been no new ALCS action since the last time we talked. So we can get into the somewhat lopsided NLCS thus mm. far. The second game certainly was. Yeah. I did want to say, you know what we haven't seen this postseason, what? aside from a Diamondbacks NLCS win, we haven't really seen many clock violations. Do you yeah. remember how that was kind of a concern? Right? Yeah. It was like, okay, it's one thing during the regular season, but what if this happens during the postseason? What if the worst case scenario happens and you get a postseason game decided on a clock violation, which didn't even happen during the regular season, right? But that was, I think, part of the rationale behind the players' request for suspending or relaxing the pitch clock in the postseason. And it just totally has not happened. So there have been a total of four pitch clock violations in the postseason so far. That is adding up pitcher violations, batter violations, catcher violations, just four. So there was one on Hector Neris. There was one on Michael Grove. And then there was one by Yimmy Garcia, and then I think also one against Yimmy Garcia that Max mm. Kepler had. So four in 26 postseason games, which is a really low rate, a lot lower even than the regular season. So during the regular season, there were 1,048 violations in 2,430 games. Um, basing this on the FanCraft's violations leaderboard. So this is 0.43 per game during the regular season. And they got rarer as the season went on and players got the hang of how long the clock was and how not right. to screw that up. So right. bef before the All-Star break, it was 740 violations in 1,357 games. That's 0.55 per game. Post-break, 308 in 1,073 games, 0.29 per game. So a lot lower, but 0.29 per game, still a lot higher than the 0.15 per game that we have seen in the postseason thus far. Even if you drill down to September, October in the regular season, so the last month when everyone had been playing with this for several months by that point, there were 103 in 422 games then. So that's 0.24 per game. And again, so far in the postseason, 0.15 per game. Hmm. So it's uh, it's like halved almost the rate of the least frequent month in the regular season. So I guess it's partly that players have just gotten the hang of it. Yeah. And I, I haven't checked to see if these playoff teams avoided violations better in the regular season than right. the average. Maybe, maybe they did. But maybe it's also just that these moments matter a lot. And yeah. so players are really taking care not to yeah. take too long. Yeah. I, I imagine it's a, a soup in which all of those things are the ingredients. Cause you don't want to be, you don't want to be the guy that 
does a thing with the pitch clock that proves to be decisive, people are going to remember that for a long time, if for no other reason than there have been so few of these, right? Yeah. So baseball has a number of these things. Like, you don't want to be the guy that does the this, you know? You yeah. don't want to You don't mm-hmm. want to make the third out of third base. You don't want to be... And I think this is on the list for guys where it's like, I want to make sure not to embarrass myself and it's so nice because i i can't remember if we were talking about this on the the main feed or on the patreon stream but i just like don't i really don't think about the pitch clock very much at all i just Mm -hmm. i will go whole games without thinking about it even one time you know even when i see it on the broadcast i'm like oh there's that yeah moving on you know Mm -hmm. so it's i really think we can score to triumph and the fact that it has not been some weird unanticipated wrinkle in the postseason makes me even more comfortable saying that so yeah one thing that surprised me when i saw that there had been so few violations i thought well maybe players are speeding along because they're so wary of the violation Mm. but the pace has actually been slower yeah so if you look at fancraft's 18.8 seconds between pitches on average in the regular season, 19.7 in the postseason. Now, it got slower post-break. It was 18.6 pre-break, post-break 19.1. And as we talked about, the game times crept up a little, seemingly as players figured out how long they could take. But it has been longer in the postseason. I wonder if that is just because of like more mound visits. Maybe that yeah. is probably in the average there because the stakes are higher. So, so maybe that's getting captured by this because this is probably not just the the straight time between. Also, time between pitches. I assume the the fan graphs calculation. Some people might say, well, that sounds high given that the the clock is fifteen seconds with the bases empty and and twenty with the base with the with runners on, but. That's starting when the pitcher gets the ball back, right? Yeah, so, I so this so, is yes. yeah, this is not taking that into account. This is right. just how long elapsed between pitches. Right. But it has been longer than it was even after the break. So, I guess it's either that players have gotten really, really adept at just going down to the wire, but not going over. Or, yeah, maybe it is factoring in something where there are more stoppages that are not actually counting against the clock. But, yeah, it's it's not like the games are speeding along even more because players are so scared of going right. over the line. Well, and, you know, I think there's probably something to your mound visit theory because, like, think about, you know, think about how some of these games have gone. Like, mm-hmm. the the Dodgers might have accounted for <laughs> a lot of that just on their own. You know, they're inflating the average because of how short their starts were and how often, you know, their coach went out to like say, hey, how was it going? Although not to Lance Lynn. So, you know, one of my, yeah. who am I to say? What a nice thing to not have to have worried about, you know, mm-hmm. as it turned out. It's, uh, yeah. It was pretty chill. That's so nice. Yeah. yeah. There was one smooch, though. The rate of, of smooches <gasps> per game perhaps has has increased, which I, you've been on this beat for a while. So <laughs> I know you noticed. <laughs> I did. And, you know, just in case I hadn't, people were like, hey, Meg, by the way, there's a little kissing, there's a little mm-hmm. smooch and like a very tender, you know, oh, next smooch. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a tender <laughs> smooch, Ben. Yeah. Uh, all I can say is that I'm so happy that this inspires the same level of vigilance and alert on the part of people who have heard me advocate for this as the pooping. You know, like mm-hmm. I I was really getting wary of any time a guy might have 
pooped or farted in a way that we would take note of. Uh, ding, ding, ding. My mm-hmm. my menchies is light up. And, yeah. um, you know, I uh, to be clear, hardly the only person advocating for if they want to. If these, they want to. Only if, if these, they want to. But if they want to, these <laughs> these boys being able to give a little tender smooch to each other, you know. And mm-hmm. that's, that's hardly... My beat exclusively, you know, and there there are variations on this beat. You know, the motivations behind it they can be they range in their horniness. Um, mm-hmm. So I just want to acknowledge all the many people out here advocating for the exchange of tender smooching if it if it so moves them. But boy, it's so nice. Look, I. I selfishly would like for the Diamondbacks to advance just because it would be very cool to cover a World Series game. But they're not kissing each other. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the Phillies going back to the World Series puts the, you know, Fangraphs gets a ring via one of its alums, like, back in the mm. mix. And mm-hmm. that's also appealing because I'd be so happy for Corinne. So all of that to say... Is a little tender, you know. They all seem like they are having a great time. They seem like they love each other very much, and yeah. uh, city of brotherly come, love. So yeah, many of them <laughs> have come close to the smooch in the mm-hmm. past, but we are getting real smooch, and um, mm-hmm. um, not like on the lips with each other, but in some ways, the next smooch. I know, argu- I, arguably more intimate in, right. in many ways. Like I was going to say, yeah, this was what Johan Rojas and Nick Castellanos, yes. right? And and Rojas just planted a peck on yeah. Castellanos's neck, sort of like almost behind his ear, like yeah. a little bit behind and below his ear. Yeah. And I I guess that's similar to the Jordan Maldonado kissing yeah. tradition this yes. season, where after Jordan hits a homer, he plants a little peck on little Maldonado. Neck, so yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's it's avoiding the lip area, which maybe isn't so surprising. But as you're saying, I don't know that it's actually any less intimate. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's, it's a little intimate. it's a little less obvious. It almost looks like oh, was he just whispering something? No, no, no I mean, he, he may have intimate. whispered some sweet nothings yeah. while he was doing the kiss. But there was a kiss. There was a kiss. It was very it was a very intimate little kiss, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I just I want all. The you know, and both parties have to want the kiss to be clear, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if everybody is down to kiss, I think give it give each other a little kiss, you know. Mm-hmm. It's nice to express your love for your friends. They need to know these things, and you give a little, yeah. Mm, you know, if you if <laughs> only if they want to, but if, they, if want they want to, to. Mm-hmm. I want them to to be able to act on that desire because yeah. it's nice, it's a nice thing, you know. Um, you got these. It's just like a real range of guys, uh, kinds mm-hmm. of guys, archetypes of guys on that Philly team. You know, you got you got some big boys, you got some kind of sweaty dirtbag guys. Although, like mm-hmm. the the archetype of that on this Philly team is Marsh, and he just seems like a a, a hug you bro. You know, is mm-hmm. one way that I might describe it. He's so happy. He at, throughout this postseason has not always been like the guy. You know, they have plat- they platoon him, and so he has not always drawn the favorable matchup and has been on the bench. And some some guys might sulk at that because they want to leave their mark on the postseason. And, and not Brandon Marsh. He's on he's on the top step of the dugout, just like cheering on his dudes. So he seems like a a smiley hug bro, and we we like those of all the kinds of bros. That's the best kind of bro, Ben. That's the mm-hmm. that's the that's the preferable bro, you know, and and we've got 
you know, they got some very handsome guys. They've got when when are we getting Judith Butler's read of Bryce Harper's presentation of masculinity? I'm just asking for things that would be cool and that everyone would enjoy. You know, and so it's just like a it's a real it's a real range and the thing that unites them uh, apart from wanting to unbutton as as much as possible yeah. is their seeming love for each other and it's I think it's beautiful, you know, to mm-hmm. have such a positive and affirming view of masculine friendship you know what a nice thing it's been nice to see yeah their emotions runneth over their cup runneth over their run scored (laughs) runneth over their home run totals runneth over so no wonder the the feelings are flowing and so are the runs and man i just i find that i have little to say about most of the postseason games this year because they just have not been very competitive, right? It's, I mean, we haven't seen, like, it's just, it's four nothing now in the LCS rounds, two nothing apiece, right? We just, it's been a long time since the last lead change. It's been almost a week. As Joe Sheehan noted, we've seen a total of two lead changes after the fourth inning in these 26 playoff games. The team leading at the end of four is 23-2 and two thus far. There hasn't been a, a single game tied after the fifth. It just hasn't been very competitive. Sometimes yeah. the final scores have been close, but right. just not a lot of late intrigue. Just not a yeah. lot of comebacks, not a lot of win expectancy swings, nothing. So right. that is sort of disappointing as a neutral but sure and also as someone who's looking for analysis and things to say interesting points to make about these playoff games when one team wins 10 to nothing there's just only so much to say like i know that there was criticism of tori lovello for well, I think there was criticism of him for leaving in Merrill Kelly for too long and maybe also pulling him too soon. Yeah. <laughs> so he was kind of taking fire from both sides on that, depending on the person doing the critiques. But but that game, it fell apart for the Diamondbacks yeah. in the sixth and later, right? And, you know, Kelly came back out for the sixth and he gave up the home run to Schwarber and then he walked Turner and, you know, things gradually got out of hand after that. So, yeah, maybe, maybe he stuck with Kelly too long. But then again, like, it's not like the Diamondbacks bullpen has been lights out until very recently and then wasn't in that game. And beyond that, it's just if you don't score a run ever, it's just not that interesting to go with a fine-tooth comb over the pitching decisions of the team that got shut out or barely mustered any offense. You never know if it would go that way. If the game had stayed closer, maybe things would have played out differently. But it's just, you know, there's only so much grief you can give, really, when the team's offense doesn't show up. I was fine with him leaving Kelly in as long as he did. I was really glad he pulled him when he did, which was a weird push and pull internally for me because I think I have been saying, like, hey, you guys, the bad D-backs bullpen pieces are going to show. It's going to happen at some point. Like, they're going to do some D-backs bullpen stuff because, like, that's what they – there's not a – even with the reinforcements, right, even with Seawald 
being added at the deadline, even with Thompson coming over and being like so good. You know, this is a group that over the course of a full season has been quite shaky and, and Ginkle, you know, Ginkle's good. But like it, there have been reasons to fret over the D-backs relievers. And so I was, I understood the instinct to like try to ride Kelly as long as you could it felt very nerve-wracking. It felt nerve-wracking from the jump because he and I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to be a bit crude, like just kept leaving these fastballs like right down the dick to guys, Ben, like mm-hmm. from jump. And not all of them got punished as, as hard as they should have. The ones that did sure did go far, but it felt like he was, that it should have been a much larger deficit when he exited than it was. Um, and then, yeah, it kind of, it kind of fell apart. It felt it's a games like that are so strange because on the one hand, like, you know, it's three runs. You could score three runs. Teams score three runs all the time, but it did not feel that close. I think in part because of how narrowly Kelly was avoiding it being worse. And then obviously it got, it got well out of hand. So, you know, you're right. I, I, I didn't come away from that being like, man, this one's on Tory. I came away from that being like, you kind of have to score some runs to win a baseball game. And, mm-hmm. you know, when your bullpen implodes that badly, like what else are you going to do? I liked that he got, you know, he got some guys in who haven't like played yet. Like it was nice that Jordan Lawler saw some time once it became clear that like they weren't going to win. And so, you know, why keep Corbin Carroll in there? So, you know, I like it when managers do that. I think it's nice for guys to get their feet wet a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't close. Can I say something? I know that Alec Bohm is is still not a good third baseman, mm-hmm. but Alec Bohm is like much better. Like you know, mm-hmm. he he feels like he he's had some nice plays this postseason. I don't think it's quite as extreme as like last year when Nick Castellanos was suddenly like a very good outfielder mm-hmm. for a stretch, and we were like, where the heck did that come from? Like Bohm is still not rated well by most of the defensive metrics, but better than in previous years and it it feels noticeable when you want to construct a a narrative of like a team as kind of having little little feeling of destiny Mm -hmm. i feel like little things like that become part of the narrative like even alec Baum is fielding well you guys like how could this phillies (laughs) team be stoppable when alec Baum is like playing third base competently Mm -hmm. it uh it'll be interesting to see i feel Bad for the D-backs, like, you know, they got these two losses in Philly, huge atmosphere. They are in a god-awful time slot tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. They play at 2 p.m. local time, so I don't know. You know, I got a PR email about how low the ticket prices are going at Chase, so... It's probably going to feel like a marked contrast between the Citizens Bank Park crowd and the Chase crowd. And I will just encourage all the broadcasters watching to remember that it is a 2 p.m. game Mm -hmm. on a Thursday, you know, when people are famously busy doing work in school. So, you know, I feel like that narrative train is lumbering down the tracks toward us. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Yeah. Boehm is better. Just the whole Phillies team is better, as we've discussed. It's a better Phillies team than last year yep. that that wrecked things on the way to the World Series, too. It, this is just it's a stronger team. It feels less surprising and more sustainable, which is not yeah. to say that they will continue to just run roughshod over everyone the way that they have. Because to this point, 
Neil Payne just wrote about this for The Messenger, but they are basically the most dominant postseason team ever in MLB, just like minimum seven games played in terms of run differential per game. Like they have outscored their opponents now by an average of 4.1 runs per game this year, which is the highest ever over the 2007 Red Sox, who finished at 3.79. They played 14 games. The Phillies have played eight. So if they do continue to, well, we know they'll play at least a a few more games. But, you know, if they make it all the way to the World Series, probably that will come down and they won't look quite as invulnerable and unstoppable. But they've looked just great. And I guess it's going to be a unstoppable force meets a movable object thing because the Rangers so far are fourth on that list because they have outscored their opponents by 3.3 runs per game. So they haven't had a tough time of it either, which again, just goes back to what we were saying about not a lot of nail biters here really. And the Phillies have only lost one game and it was on those wild circumstances on the, the Bryce Harper, Michael Harris play. So yeah, like, I don't know what you can say. They they have someone hit multiple homers every game. The team yep. hit, seems to hit several homers per game. Like, the rotation yeah. is as good as it was cracked up to be. Craig Kimbrell makes me nervous still. Like, yes. he, he's been pretty unscathed thus far, but he hasn't looked great doing it. Mm-mm. So if it does come down to just, I mean, the fact that they are running them out there in the high leverage moments or or what has passed for high leverage moments thus far, that would make me a little bit scared because uh, one of these days that high wire act may not work as well. But aside from that, what can you say? Like what, what knocks are there? What dings are there? They've just looked incredible. They've played so well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the rotation being solid. Like it would be easy after yesterday's eventual score to lose sight of of the effort that Nola put forth. But yeah. like, boy, did he look really, really good. He looked yep. so good. And when his breaking stuff is playing like that, like, you know, good luck. It's mm-hmm. it's a tricky thing to navigate. So, you know, we wanna he had a he had a weird up and down year and it's his contract here, so let us take a moment to put the shine on Aaron Nola, because boy, mm-hmm. he looked real good yesterday. Yeah. So which of the teams that is down 0-2 as we speak do you feel better about making a comeback here? I guess on the one hand, the, the Astros lost two home games, yeah. whereas the Diamondbacks lost two road games. So that means they're going to go home, which theoretically puts them in a better position. But do you feel – but on the other hand, I guess – less rotation depth for the Diamondbacks, like the Rangers, you know, they're coming back with Scherzer, right? And and they've got the reinforcements, they've got Scherzer, they've got Gray, like they've got a deeper group there, whereas with the Diamondbacks, a little less so. (laughs) So so which do you feel better about mounting a comeback or feel less bad about? (laughs) I would say that I think the Astros are positioned better just because of the, you know, while I think that their options rotation wise are not like perfect. I think they're definitely better than what Arizona is going to be able to muster here because, you know, Fott will take the ball for Arizona tomorrow. Then you're looking at a bullpen game. And so like, uh, you know, that's, that's suboptimal. Whereas, you know, 
the Astros get to throw Javier and then they can go to Rikidi. And again, like you would rather Verlander and Fromber, although Fromber's been, you know, yeah. so who knows. But I I still think that in terms of the starting options that Houston can can put forth, they're preferable to what Arizona can do. I mean, you're in this bad spot where you have fought going on Thursday, you know, you probably can't count on him to go particularly deep. And then you have to do this dance if you're Tori Lavello, where it's like, how do I balance? You know, he's going to be in Dave Roberts' shoes, right? Where he has to win. You know, he doesn't have to win or go home, but like, you really get, like, how do you balance wanting to potentially win a fought start with the fact that you're going to have a bullpen game? the next day like how do you deploy your relievers in that scenario it's you know not as dire as what the Dodgers faced but like it's kind of brushing up against that so I it seems not it's not awesome you know mm-hmm. it would have been better for Arizona to win one of those games if they wanted to advance than to <laughs> yes. have not won either of them mm. particularly behind their two um, best pitchers so <laughs> you know these are my takes takes mm-hmm. Ben yeah, I mean, that's the, the level of, of insight we could add in the postseason thus far when the, the actual moves only matter so much. Only One, so much. Two teams are steamrolling here, and yeah. yeah, it just hasn't been that close. I will say, boy, have those home runs that the Phillies have hit gone far. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing <laughs> to note. You know, they've been like really well struck. Yeah, yep. it's, uh, I don't know, man. It seems like it's not a great situation for Arizona to be in. And it's not a great one for Houston either, but it is the situation they find themselves in. Analysis. Right. Yeah. So the Diamondbacks should have tried to win a game yeah. at some point, And also the home runs went far. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it turns out that when you have a bunch of guys who are big boppers and are particularly good at slugging against slower fastballs that when you leave 92 or 93 right down the dick, they're going to hit that ball to the moon. You know, Mm -hmm. this is also a thing that it would have probably been good for them to avoid doing, but they didn't. They Mm -hmm. instead, they threw those fastballs right down the dick. Yep. Mm. I wonder if... This has been just the the most pleasurable possible experience for Phillies fans and and Rangers fans to an extent in that there hasn't been that much tension and Mm, suspense because that goes hand in hand with your team making the playoffs. Like, that's what you want. You want to be playing at this time of year. And then, as you discovered with the Mariners last year, you get what you want. And it's it's, it's awful, You you can feel like your life being shortened with with each game and each pitch, right? And yes. Now, if you win, if you survive that gauntlet and that crucible and you make it to the end and you win the World Series, maybe the catharsis, the payoff is even better if you really had to gut it out along the way, right? But if you're – this, I feel like this is even better because if you're a Phillies fan, not only do you get to enjoy your team making the playoffs, but it, it's almost – tension-free, suspense-free. I mean, not entirely, but by the standards of postseason play and following your team in October, they've just gotten to enjoy this without even fearing for their playoff lives that much. It has to feel incredible. You know, obviously, 
we didn't we're not fans of the um Arcia controversy because of its ramifications for our friend Jake but like it suggests to me that like they are living in a golden time because not that they invited that controversy. The Braves invited that controversy by like giving it continued fuel. But like when these are the things that you're like as a fan base making a big deal out of, you're sitting really pretty. Cause to you, to the point that you made when we talked about that, like you're not, that's not a, that's not, not that's nothing. You know, mm-hmm. Merrill Kelly's like, I don't know, maybe it won't be as loud as Venezuela. And the Philly fans were like, what if we ate your pets? You know, like (laughs) they are rowdy and feral and they are casting about for anything to be rowdy and feral about and finding very small things and really, you know, going to town with them. And you only are able to do that. I mean, I should not underestimate the ability of Philly's fans to be rowdy and feral in any circumstance because then they will come for me. But like, you know, these are the, these are the, the quote-unquote problems and controversies of uh, a team and a fan base that does not have discernible problems at the moment. And that's not to say that it'll be like that for the rest of their postseason run. You know, maybe Arizona will surprise us. Maybe they won't, and the Rangers will just say, hey, we we do hit and score a lot, and a lot more than Arizona does, so, like, watch out. You know, they could turn because these things can turn but right now they're uh, i envy them it's nice though because you know philly um sports fans in my experience of them can be very uh, nervous they're an anxious bunch it's like when you know whenever the seahawks play the eagles based on like a twitter timeline you would have no idea who's winning because both fan bases are just miserable that's a little (laughs) less true now because the eagles are so good but like there have been times in the past where i'm like i have logged into twitter and i have no idea what the score is because both of you sound like this is an apocalyptic trash fire and then you'll look and one team will be like winning by 20 (laughs) you're like but can we all maybe relax like we should to have a little tea and chill out mm-hmm. they're living a good life right now it's yep. a it's a good fun time you know they can't kiss the players but it feels like they're hugging them you yeah. know with their with their rowdiness and their desire to kill and eat the braves mascot you know <laughs> mm-hmm. they're like we're gonna we're gonna kill and eat this creature and you know what i support that because that <laughs> flesh monster is terrifying <laughs> And if we do get a Phillies Rangers World Series, which we're still a long way away from, but yeah. if that happens, yes, that that would be kind of a, a marked contrast to the regular season of money not correlating to yes. results and wins, right? Because yes. of the teams in the playoff field, you would probably put the the Phillies and the Rangers. I mean, they were fourth and eighth in payroll in MLB this year. I guess technically the Blue Jays and the Dodgers had higher payrolls than the Rangers did. But the way that these teams have gotten to this point has been by spending, it Mm -hmm. feels like, to a greater extent than a lot of teams. You know, the Astros are 10th in payroll. It's not like, you know, these are all 200 million plus payroll teams, but there's just not as much homegrown going on, certainly with the Rangers, right? Like sure. they they just sort of skipped some steps when it came to developing from within and promoting from within and building a team that way and that sort of traditional archetype of team building. And the Phillies, too, they did the rebuild and then it sort of stalled out. 
And then Dave Dombrowski came in and was like, what if we bolster this roster with yeah. uh, just some really good and also pricey players? And even after we win a pennant, let's go get Trey Turner and push it even further, yep. right? Which they kind of had to do maybe for similar reasons, like the the player development approach didn't work out so well. It wasn't right. panning out for them yeah. and it, it wasn't happening quickly enough for the Rangers. And they just said, hey, let's go import some pricey and productive players to put the finishing touches on this thing or at least give ourselves a springboard back into contention. And it has worked for both of these teams. Like the, yeah. the Phillies just snuck into the playoffs last year and then they made a run. And this year they had more of a cushion and a buffer. They're just a better team. And now they're making another run. And the yep. Rangers, again, they didn't sneak in quite to the extent that the Phillies did last year. But, you know, they were pretty close to missing out on the playoffs sure, too. Sure, yeah, came down to the last weekend. Yeah, and in their first year after spending, that was not a finished product yet. And, and right. they got Semyon and they got Seeger, but they, they needed to do much more. They needed to basically go get themselves a rotation, which they did. And then when some of their arms got hurt, then they went and got more arms. <laughs> we we got DeGrom up, DeGrom got hurt. Let's go get Scherzer. <laughs> Scherzer hurt too. We got Montgomery, fortunately. So just next man up, right? And trades yeah. and signings. And all you have to do, it's the cliche, one of the, the many cliches that we just spout when this time of year arrives is that you just have to get there. Just have to be good enough to get there yeah. and then anything can happen. And they are showing that once again. And they got there by just sort of spending their way to it to some extent, and that has paid off for them. So we had this regular season where a lot of the high rollers, the big spenders, did not get much bang for their buck, but in the playoffs, at least, that is shaping up to be the case. Yeah, I, you know, and a lot of the big contributors are the ones who were signed in free agency into yep. big contracts, so... You know, it's not just that the payroll is large, it's that the guys who are contributing to that payroll being significant are the ones who are producing and producing at a very high level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I learned that the Jimmy World drummers from Phoenix, so didn't know that, popping off on Philly's payroll yesterday on Twitter after... Oh, the D-backs right. loss. Yeah. Did you miss that? No, I, I did. I, I saw it. I don't know if I realized that it was Jimmy Eat World's drummer, but oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not is anyone in Jimmy Eat Eat? Is it Jimmy Eats World? Jimmy Eat World? Jimmy Jim, Jimmy Eat World? Yes. Eat World. Yeah. Okay. I got nervous there for a second. Is anyone in that band named Jimmy? <laughs> I don't know. Sound yeah. off in the comments. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. I guess uh, yes. Uh, lead vocalist and guitarist Jim Atkins. So oh. not Jimmy, but but a uh, Jim. A uh, Jim. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's. I don't think that anyone in either of those organizations is looking at the current sort of uh, makeup of of those rosters and going, man. You know, I wish that. We had more homegrown guys. I, I think they're probably going, you know who's really good at baseball? Corey Seager and Bryce Harper. Mm-hmm. So, And yeah. as always, we will just say, like, the point we are making here is that the purpose of, of a baseball team is to win games and hopefully to win a World Series. And if you give yourself a lot of different avenues of talent acquisition – it's a good thing, you know, it gives you, it gives you buffer when any of them fail. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's good. The, the Rangers were happy. I'm sure that they had the ability to add via trade with some payroll implications involved 
to, you know, bring Scherzer in when DeGrom went down. You know, mm-hmm. it's like they were happy to – Jordan Montgomery didn't cost them as much. But, you know, it's – if you have every avenue to add, you have the ability to bob and weave when stuff doesn't go well, either because of underperformance or injury. So there mm-hmm. you go. I like that as the managing editor of FanCrafts, your impulse there was to perhaps correct the subject-verb agreement of Jimmy Eat World. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe add an article in there also. Yeah. You know, guys. Uh, the world. Yeah, have or, you thought uh, Or at least a world. Jimmy eats uh, eats the world, eats eats a world, <laughs> eats worlds at least. I eats think, world, yeah. I think that came from a, a caption on a picture of Jim Adkins, Jimmy Adkins's younger siblings who were always fighting. And so there was a, a crayon drawing of uh, of Jim shoving the earth into his mouth. And so the caption said, Jimmy eat world. So it was a, a childhood thing, a fight between mm. Jim and Ed Linton. And so no wonder it's uh, doesn't, it's not quite grammatically correct, but, Mm-mm. but you know, I guess it, it's distinctive for them. So we don't have to get pedantic about band names because that would, we'd be busy for quite a while. Yeah. I can't turn it off. <laughs> and that's not to say that I, I am like a perfect editor or anything, but like, I can't turn it off and it, is the thing that people have asked me to. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so I, yeah. I want you to know, listeners, that if you find it annoying, you're not alone. You know, mm-hmm. there's a there's a legion that's like, mm-hmm. could you not, though? So. Well, I've just about exhausted my playoff takes, but we'll be back with more next time. I, I have a couple lightly related or unrelated banter topics here. One is about an eliminated playoff team, the Milwaukee mm. Brewers, because mm. wanted to ask you what you think they will or should do this offseason or how you think their plans might be affected by the fact that Brandon Woodruff is evidently out for all yeah. of 2024 or most Man. of it with his – sh- yeah. The, the shoulder injury that kept him out for much of this season, he had surgery, right? So he's yeah. he's going to be done for a while. And then there was already some uncertainty just because of Brewers spending and payroll being what it typically is. So there was right. some speculation that someone could be traded, maybe Woodruff, Corbin Burns. Obviously, there's been a lot of speculation about whether he will be traded or Willie Adamas, perhaps. And then there's the uncertainty about Craig Council, too. So when Brewers GM Matt Arnold spoke about this recently, he was asking about the financial situation of the team. He said, we can never close the door on any trade conversations. As you guys know, that's just the reality of where we are. He said, the short answer is that we're extremely comfortable having Woodruff, Burns, and Adamas on the roster. I think this was before Woodruff's surgery. He said the foundation is that they're here and they're really good players. Obviously, anything can happen over the course of an offseason. We'll certainly have to entertain a lot of different discussions, but we recognize the value of these players and how much they mean to our franchise. Nothing substantive really said there, as one would expect. But Arnold said, we'll see how it plays out over the course of the offseason in regards to Burns. He said, I would expect him to be here next year. Then there's the 
question about counsel, too, who I think John Heyman recently reported that counsel could be pried away, that the Mets have, I think he said, a reasonable chance of Mm -hmm. hiring him away with his old boss, David Stearns, perhaps bringing him to New York. Although another source connected to the Brewers said that the organization believes he'll remain with the team as long as he gets paid, quote, what he believes is fair. And as we discussed recently, a lot of reasons for Craig Council to stay where he is. He's yeah. been successful there. He's well-liked there. He's a Midwestern yeah. guy. He played for the Brewers. Why would you want to go to the Mets? <laughs> it's just, does that work out well for many managers? Does that lead to lots of longevity? I guess if he went there and, and he were able to deliver success and sustained success in a championship, then that would be great. And, and probably he'd be in line for a pay bump, but... Boy, it it comes with a lot of extra scrutiny and a lot of extra drama and also a higher payroll and perhaps better players, but better results, not necessarily. So what do you think they will do or should do other than just, you know, keep all your good players and sign some others, which is, (laughs) I guess, one thing that we could tell them to do, but probably not something that they will do. Hmm, Where would I rather live? I hate moving. If it were me... I would be inclined to, if I'm the Brewers, I would prioritize trying to get counsel to return. But if I'm doing that, I feel like I'm kind of committing to adding to the roster in a meaningful way. Yeah. Because if you're Craig Counsel, do you really want to work through a rebuild? Right. Yeah, those things probably go hand in hand. If if he's going to stick around long term, he's probably going to ask for yeah. a guarantee or indication of what what tack they're going to take. So, yeah, it would suggest to me that yeah, I feel like you really are committing one way or the other. You either retain counsel and say, "Hey, we know that we have a bunch of guys who are either injured or approaching free agency, but we're going to prioritize keeping the dudes we have and maybe adding um, significantly to bridge the gap between, you know, where the roster is now, where we, we think it needs to be to remain competitive because the Cubs are coming, the Cardinals won't be bad forever, you know, the Reds are sassy and might be, you know, kind of bearing down on us as well. I think that the the two decisions come hand in hand, and if Council leaves, that's probably a pretty strong indicator of what the rest of the offseason is going to play out like for them. Mm-hmm. They have meaningful additions that they will have to make here, right? Because they'll be without Woodruff. They have the the Miley option, but like right now, their starting rotation on roster resources burns Peralta and Miley, and you famously need more than three. You know, <laughs> like you really yeah. do need more I, than I, three. Peralta's the only guy under contract beyond next season, I think, really right. in that rotation because Burns and Woodruff are free agents, as are Adamus, uh, Adrian Hauser, Eric Lauer, right. all those guys after 2024. So right. they could totally keep the, that court together for one more year and give it a go, right. even though without Woodruff, it's a little tougher. But but they were mostly without Woodruff this season and they, they still right. made it. And, you know, part of why it, their roster resource up chart is what it is is because Hauser didn't make the wildcard roster. But, like, yeah, it's they they have some they have some work to do um, on the pitching side. They have a number of young guys who they're excited about amongst their position players, but like not all of them playing really well. Mm-hmm. so it it does feel like a roster that needs a good bit of work to, like, really remain competitive in a division that is is 
not as hard as, say, the East or the West, but is more um, robust than it has been in a little while. So Mm -hmm. they're not going to, you know, I doubt that the Cardinals are going to be content with 71 wins again next year, although I'm sure they weren't happy with it this year. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. They haven't really been keen on spending in the past, so who knows? Yeah, it's not that there's ever a good time to have a shoulder injury or a shoulder surgery, but right. that was especially lousy yeah. time for Woodruff. And, yeah. and and that's a injury that has derailed or ended a lot of careers. I, yeah. I guess it's the injury that Julio Rios came back from and was still effective after. But a lot of players like Johan Santana and Mark Pryor and Rich Harden, you know, those are not names that you want to be associated with when it comes to having long, healthy careers. Right. So perhaps the the science of shoulder repair has advanced recently. I don't know. But a lot of sort of scary comps there. And and because he was heading into his last ARB year. Right. So he was or is in line for a, a raise. And I don't know how the Brewers will handle that if he's most likely done for 2024. And then you don't know for sure if he'll be right. compromised after that. Right. I guess, like, he could be a, a non-tender candidate, maybe, which which would make him a free agent now, I guess. Or they could sign one of those two-year type deals right. where maybe he, you know, gets a, a lower AAV but some right. security. So I don't know how they'll handle it. But, yeah, that's, you know, his, his platform year it would have been. And that's a really terrible timing for him when it comes to cashing in. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. The Brewers did get uh, a big infusion of, of cash for repairs and, and renovations of their ballpark, which uh, I guess that's that's one thing, right? The the Brewers, sure. not that they were ever really on the verge of leaving, but we were hearing just uh, questions about like, you know, threats. So, well, we might have to look elsewhere, right? And the Wisconsin State Assembly voted heavily in favor of a, a measure that would give them almost $550 million in funding for renovations and improvements. And I think that would extend their lease through 2050 at least. And and most of this is public funding with the brewers kicking in an additional $100 million. I think in this case, I don't know if that's a little less egregious than it is in many ballpark funding examples because the ballpark I think is owned by the state and like leased out to the brewers, but still anyway i guess you're not going to hear much probably noise now about the brewers threatening to leave but there are still questions about craig council leaving or various players leaving so they've had a, a really nice run and they've managed to be a contending team year in and year out and doing it without spending a, a ton of money relative to the rest of the league. So we'll see if they can keep that going. And obviously Stearns is, is gone now, though he hasn't been running the show there for a while. So it's a, a transitional time. It's a pivotal offseason for the Milwaukee Brewers. We'll see what they do. Yeah. Another thing I was wondering about. So I have read not one, but two long profiles of Shams Charania in recent days, right? So Mm. the NBA newsbreaking battle between Shams and Woj, of course, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, 
the dropper of Woj bombs, and then Shams, his great rival, his former mentee and protege, who has uh, now just become his rival for every tidbit, every morsel of NBA news. And he works for The Athletic and also Stadium and FanDuel and everywhere, right? And so there's just this cutthroat competition between the two of them for every bit of NBA news to the point that, like, they're almost as as big as the players in terms of, like, name value and, and news value. And people are keeping track of who's broken more news, Woj or Shams, right? And there's this very intense rivalry where they won't acknowledge each other anymore. You know, they it's just each of them is like he who must not be named to the other, <laughs> even though, you know, initially Woj took Shams under his wing. But then Shams didn't go to ESPN when Woj left Yahoo and and they've just been intense, intense rivals ever since. And I was thinking about how different this is from the baseball news-breaking landscape because you still have people who are competing to be the first to sure. tweet out everything, right? And and I guess you would say that the closest you have to a Shams and a Woj are Jeff Passan and Ken Rosenthal, right? Except that Passan is the ESPN one in this scenario. Right. But there's just – there's a lot more – I don't want to say like, I don't know, comedy, I guess, uh, among baseball newsbreakers. Like, I'm sure there's there's still a, a rivalry, of course, like each one wants to be first, but there's a lot more courtesy when it comes to like so-and-so had it first, right? And they will credit each other very diligently. And and it's it's less concentrated among the top two because Passan right. and Rosenthal probably break the most news, but but then yeah. there's a whole hierarchy under them. You know, you got your right. Heymans and you got your Moroses and your Olneys and, yes, your Nightingales <laughs> sometimes. So there's, a, I guess, kind of a, a wider, a more democratically distributed yeah. ecosystem of newsbreakers. But also there's just a lot less, like... Maybe it's because no one has quite cornered the market as much as Woj and Shams have, or maybe it's just because like the the payoff isn't as big when it comes to MLB news as NBA news, right? Because like there's not as much focus on off the field matters in MLB. Like it's MLB is not as big in on social media as the NBA or there's not right. as much interest in the off the field, off the court drama as there is in the NBA. So it's just like people don't really keep track of who breaks these news. Whereas like, you know, there's people who have like scoreboards of did Woj or Shams break more news and they like break it down over a period of years. I don't know that there's a tracker of like, are there more passing bombs or Rosenthal bombs, right? So it it seems a lot different. I was I was trying to think of like whether it's better this way or, or that way. I think I'm kind of happy that it's this way in MLP, that it's it's not just two guys going to war constantly over who breaks the news, but it's a little friendlier and yeah. <laughs> it's just it's less concentrated. It's just a totally, totally different way of, of breaking and receiving news, even though there is still the competition for who can tweet things out a few seconds faster. I much prefer our our landscape to what I see in among the 
the newsbreakers and the the NFL and the NBA to the extent that I observe either of those. It does seem like the the cutthroatness of the competition creates a number of pretty perverse incentives for the newsbreakers over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems bad. So I think I prefer what we've got going. And that isn't to say that you can't tell like when say, and I'm just going to like um, remain Switzerland. I'm a neutral party. I'm Swiss babe. But um, uh, about this, but like you, there are times when you can tell like, Oh, that text is direct from an executive or that was mm-hmm. copied straight from a text from an agent. And, you know, you said that people aren't tracking them, but I have heard tell of efforts been to uh-huh. suss out agent sourcing at the very least and certainly um, executive sourcing. So, you know, like it, it, there are times where you get stuff quoted as like breaking news and you're like, mm-hmm. that's a copy mm-hmm. paste from a text. Yeah. But um, it does seem more collegial. I mm-hmm. don't think that, like, Jeff is trying to get Ken murdered. And if you told me <laughs> that was going on um, in, in some of the other circles, I'd be like, yeah, yeah I believe that. You know, yeah. that tracks. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's nice. <laughs> that yeah. They're not doing that stuff. Yeah, for, the, for those two in particular, I think in general, it, it's – it's delivered more dispassionately, so that's good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. It seems like really dangerous over there. It like does, you don't yeah. Want, like they wouldn't want to be, you know, find each other in a bar at whatever the NBA equivalent of winter meetings is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that might lead to like, I know. a shiving or something. It does seem um, that way, yeah. And yeah, it's, it seems it's, pretty bad. It's still possible for local baseball writers to break news about their totally. teams. That happens, <laughs> whereas in Quite the NBA— often. It yeah. just seems like everyone else has given up because it's just yeah. they have so dominated the market that like there are examples in there was one Washington Post story. There was one New York Magazine story, these profiles of these two guys. And it sounds like sometimes a, a local NBA reporter will try to confirm something with the team. And then like moments later, Woj or Shams will tweet it out. And it's like just by trying to confirm it with the team, whoever the, the sources of Woj and Shams are with that team will then immediately go to them and we'll have them break right. the news instead. And I think there are a lot of sort of bad things about this. Now, yeah. whether you call this journalism or not, I guess it is of a sort, yeah. but a lot of people have lamented that this is just sort of useless from a consumer's perspective, right? Like both of these guys are just, just I mean, trying to tear off any little bit of meat on the bone yeah. when it comes to transactions. But all this stuff is is stuff that we would find out anyway. And so all the all the competition for who can tweet out this transaction a moment before the other, what stories are not being told and reported on, what favor is being curried here. It's not like they're breaking news that. Teams Teams don't want out there in the sense that, I mean, yeah, they are in the sense that sometimes these things leak before teams would want it out there, but but it's going to come out anyway, as opposed to things that might never come out if you had someone digging there who was not sort of enthralled to their sources, right? And, right. and I think, and maybe I've mentioned this before, but another big difference between MLB newsbreakers and NBA newsbreakers and maybe even NFL is that there really is a lot of journalism done by the yeah. top MLB newsbreakers. Right. Like, Passan and Rosenthal are writing 
all the time. And I don't agree with everything they write, but I, I think they're both, for the most part, fine writers who, who really right. put a lot of effort and work into their columns and, and their pieces. You know, it, it's yeah. not like they're only just trying to be the first to tweet something like, look at the volume of copy that Rosenthal right. pumps out. Like, you know, he's writing every day, you know, right. and and Passon writes a lot too. And there's a lot of care that goes into those pieces, whether you, you love every one of them or not. Right. Whereas like Woj was a successful columnist at one time, but now he's just tweeting basically or, or doing yeah. just very bare bones like news summaries of what's in his tweets essentially. And Shams is kind of like a legendarily convoluted writer, right? He's not yeah. really known for his his writing. Like he comes from that generation of when we had MLB newsbreakers who were like kids in school, you know, for a while. And and some of them have gone on to to have careers in baseball journalism. Others sort of fizzled out, but he was breaking tons of news when he was in high school and and has gone to turn it on into this lucrative high-powered career. But he doesn't write that much or he's not known for his writing. Right. Whereas in baseball, it, you can't just be someone who tweets transactions. And and those guys will report meaningful things about the game, too. Not right. just who signed who or what the trade rumors are, but like, you know, deeper underlying issues that sometimes don't reflect so well on the league. Like, uh, I'm not saying that they're, you know, total bomb throwers who are going at MLP about every issue, but like— right. Rosenthal was, you know, parted ways, let's say, with MLB Network over the fact yeah. that he was critical of Rob Manfred and his work at The Athletic. And Manfred, the league, reportedly didn't like that and didn't want to yeah. bring him back, right? So so it's a little less buddy-buddy. And I, I think there's more journalistic value to what the baseball newsbreakers bring. Well, and in the that New York Mag piece, like, there's this bit in there where they say— the longtime front office executive told me that information from insider reporters could even help a GM save a buck. Wojer yeah. Shams might say, hey, don't get levered up on player X. He's not going to get an offer from his team. The executive said there are times when they have information that has prevented me from making a mistake in terms of the magnitude of a contract offer or the inclusion of a specific asset in a deal. And it's like, yeah. what are you doing <laughs> if yeah. that is the price that your access is predicated on? Like, yeah. You know, I agree with you. Like, we, you know, we don't always agree with what Jeff or Ken will write. There are times when we've been critical of their work, but, like, I can't recall an instance where I thought that that was what was at play. No, I think that there might be some other newsbreakers or there might be a little more transactional arrangement Perhaps. going on. So who could even, you know, who, I'm mumbling. Can you even understand me? Couldn't even hear that accusation. Like, you couldn't even hear it. But, um... You know, the idea that you are engaged in, how do I want to put this? I feel like very often, if not in general, in the MLB sort of scoops ecosystem, there's there's clearly competition. You know, I think that there's a lot of pride taken in breaking big news and doing it first. But I do think that in general, there's a better job done of sort of zooming out from that and being able to sort of appreciate what your role in that ought to be. Want, and that role being one of a journalist who is breaking news, not like a horse trader. So mm -hmm. I think that that's an important distinction. Um, and I think that y you're right to say that, you know, the – 
you know, Jeff and Ken and all these guys, they're writing fairly often. And I think that because the work that they're doing is grounded more in actual, like, journalism and not Mm -hmm. just tweeting, it tends to be more principled and it tends to have a broader view and it tends to be less obsequious. And all of those things are to the benefit of certainly our understanding of the game and our readers understanding of the game. So I think Mm -hmm. that that's a good thing. And like, you know, we're saying all this nice stuff about Jeff and Ken makes me very uncomfortable. You know, surely we must take them down a peg. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, I do think that there are meaningful differences there, even as there's room for everyone to continue to like grow and improve in terms of how they balance access versus journalism. Because this is like a constant thing that you have to do. It's not like you get good at it and then you never have to reconsider those dynamics again. Like I imagine that it is something that is evolving and changing. And even if it's not always done perfectly, I think that there is a commitment to that process on the MLB side that I like just, I don't know. I don't know either of them. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but like, you know, Woj, Shams, you know, Schefter on the NFL Mm -hmm. side. Like, I just don't get that same sense. It feels, it feels much more, they strike me as being interested in their own celebrity in a way that is orders of magnitude different than what anyone on the MLB side is is interested in. And I think that like once you've crossed that Rubicon, it's a big problem. Because <laughs> then you're not you're not trying to be a a, a news person. You're trying mm-hmm. to be, you know, you're trying to be a, a a guy. You're trying to be an actor in the space. And that's mm-hmm. fundamentally different than being someone who reports on it and observes it. So mm-hmm. yeah, and and Rosenthal and Passon both started out as newspaper guys uh, covering teams, and and Woj was a newspaper columnist type guy too. Sure. And and that's not to say that you can't come up just through digital media the no, way that, that Shams has, and and not be like a great accomplished journalist. But yeah. it's just I would his... be a, a ridiculous thing for <laughs> yeah, no one for would us say that say. anymore. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> no. no, absolutely not. I don't think that the only it's not like legacy media is the only avenue through which to become a credible and sort of ethical no, um, who, who would even news uh, gatherer imply or suggest such a thing in October 2023, right? Yeah. Uh, who would who would right. cast aspersions upon no. younger <laughs> digital media members these it days? It's so I mean. annoying how young he is, though. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell him that in person. I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna see Jake later tonight. I'm gonna be like, you stupid young guy. No, yeah. he loves Jake. Yeah, and, and also, in my experience, at least, like, Jeff and Ken are, are nice guys, you know? Like, yeah. they're they're relatable, they're personable, like, uh, they will they will help out younger reporters and, and yeah. you know, give their time to them and that sort of thing. Whereas, Woj, it seems like everyone's just scared of him. I mean, you know, I'm not saying he's not a nice guy, I don't know him, but, but everyone's, like, anonymous quotes in these pieces because they're afraid <laughs> to, like, go on the record to, to talk about these guys. And meanwhile, Shams just is absolutely like a a prisoner to the news cycle that he himself is creating. Like he's so tethered to his phone. I mean, I work a lot and I get a lot of screen time, but reading about Shams's life, like it sounds miserable to me. I mean, there's a, you know, it's lucrative. It, It leads to a lot of attention and prominence and everything. But the guy, like, cannot put his phone down for a second. I mean, yeah. there's a story in New York Mag 
about how, like, you know, he would play pickup basketball from time to time, but now he's given that up because he missed breaking a bit of news while he was playing pickup basketball one day, or like he went on a vacation recently and went down from 18 hours of screen time per day to like 13 or 14, and he was proud of that. (laughs) And and also 14 hours a day on vacation. (laughs) <laughs> it's just uh, nonstop. I, for, I, you know? I forgot that nugget. Yeah. And, That's, and uh, part of the way he does it, like he's pretty open about in these stories, certainly make clear, like he just pesters people. He just hounds people. He is just sending out hundreds and hundreds of texts per day. And like, you know, he'll send people like happy birthday texts and like happy mm-hmm. Father's Day. He sent someone, <laughs> the New York Mag story said that he sent someone a happy Labor Day text. <laughs> and it's just like, like he must just have these pre-programmed where he knows everyone's birthday and he knows who's a father and he just sends out these texts. And if he's trying to wheedle some little bit of information out of you, then he'll send like 20 texts in an hour and you might just just give him something to make him go away. I would block his number. I would, bl- <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't I know. give him anything. I would be like, here's the thing, blocking your number now. Right. Well, you'd think, except that, you know, apparently there's a power dynamic there where, as you said, like they learn a lot from from Shams and Woj because they talk to everyone and they have their own morsels of information to dispense. And so, (sighs) yeah, I mean, you don't hear that so much about Pass and Rosa, I don't know exactly how they operate. And, and you know, they've been on the podcast and I remember talking to Passon on either this pod or the Ringer MLB show about how he breaks news and what the deadline is like for him. Like yeah. those guys are famously high powered, busy, working all yeah. the time, too. Well, like, <laughs> yeah. When you go to winter meetings and everyone else is chilling out for the night and at the bar yeah. and three drinks in, those dudes are on their phones. Like they work right. very hard of to course. try to like track yeah. stuff down. But, so. but, but they... I don't know what their work life balance is like, but but they have lives. <laughs> they, like they they're family men, you know. Like they have right. families. Like Shams in one of these stories says, like he doesn't, you know, like he goes on dates. Uh, I would love to know what a oh date with God. Shams is like because no, at the, you know at the, what it's like, Ben. <laughs> it's someone in their phone the whole time. It, it must be right. I mean, he must just be like. Hopefully he's just like, look, this is the deal. You know, like I'm, I'm sure. like, you know, you know, going in, if we're going on a date, like I'm going to be on my phone half the time and I guess take it or leave it. I don't know. But like they, you know, they, they have families and kids and everything. I'm not saying like you, you should want to or that you have to do that. But like sure. they've at least made time in their lives for that. Whereas Shams is like, I don't know how, how anyone does what I do and like has a family and like a life like that. And granted, he's 29 years old. So maybe. Maybe his priorities will will change over time, right. but but to this point, it just leaves no time for anything else, and it just, uh, it just it sounds like you know just rolling the boulder up the hill again every day. Like I would wake up yeah. and be like, oh my gosh, I've got a thousand texts to send today. You know, I just would not ever want to do that, no matter how much you paid me. But yeah, it's it's such a different dynamic, and I guess it reflects the fact that. There's just not as much of a soap opera aspect to MLB, and and maybe it's just, you know, younger people, people who are on social media just don't care as much about baseball, and maybe that's a bad thing, but I don't know if it's a bad thing that that they don't care about it in this particular way that kind of has created these monsters when it comes to the news breaking. I mean, like, I, I feel like we have, like, designated periods where things get really busy and, right. and wild, but they're they're fairly predictable. And yeah, I just, 
someone has to break the news, right? There's like value in us knowing when these things happen. But I think that, you know, when I think about the the work from like from Jeff and Ken that has had like a big impact on the industry, it's not any individual signing, right? Like mm-hmm. the most impactful work that Ken has done, like is probably him and Evan breaking sign stealing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was a big reported labor of, of, you know, journalism that right. they did. You know, yeah, you think about the team and the league would have preferred never come out. So, right. You think yeah. about like the stuff that Jeff has done and like, you know, there are a lot of things like the, you know, the Porter revelations that he and Mina sort of co bylined. You know, that was an important that was important work that, again, a team would have preferred not ever get put out there. And so I, it's like, yeah, the news breaking has value, but its value is that it facilitates other work and analysis. Like, I just don't view it as intrinsically valuable such that if it isn't being married with other work on the part of the newsbreaker that you're like looking around saying, oh, this person is like contributing something meaningful to our conversation around the sport. And, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe is reductive. And, and you know, for all I know, like Ken and Jeff would object to that characterization too. But I don't know, man, like, you know, I want to know what signing Garrett Cole does for the Yankees. I don't like need to sit and ruminate in the fact of who broke the signing first. Like that doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me. I know it matters to the folks doing the news breaking because, you know, they get to sort of leverage that integrator exposure for their work. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's suggestive of all of this. It's sort of the front facing result of all of this other work behind the scenes. But mm-hmm. like, you know, it's always so funny when those big signings break because you'll get like generally it's it's Ken or Jeff, but you're right there. There's like a whole ecosystem of folks who do this stuff. And then like you get the the follow-up tweets, like yeah, all the details. Is, you know, Jeff yeah. had it first and it's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, yeah. you know, Can like. Can confirm so-and-so. Right, yeah. and, there, and there's value in the confirmation, right? Like mm-hmm. there's value in, in that piece of work because yeah. we have seen times where like, you know, someone has gotten it wrong and mm-hmm. the follow-up uh, elucidates that no, actually th- this player didn't sign with the Padres or whatever. Who's the one that got goofed a couple years? See, I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't it's even hard re- to remember these things. I yeah, don't like, even remember. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> and, the, and sometimes it's a, a collaborative effort where like sure, five yeah, different reporters totally. will break a signing because yes. someone will, will break like they signed him and then someone will be like, here's part of the terms and then yep. here's another part of, and here's an option that's in there and oh, there's an opt out and it'll just, you know, come out in dribs and drabs like over several tweets by several people. Yeah. So like, you know, this is a process for for folks and I don't want to denigrate the work, but I think that what makes some of the folks on the, the baseball side in particular, like highly respected within the industry is that they 
they use that to springboard into further analysis. They use that as, you know, that is one manifestation of other deeper reporting that they're doing. And I'm grateful for that being the structure of the ecosystem on our side, which isn't to say that it's perfect. And, you know, it's not to say that like everyone is doing access journalism correctly in the baseball space, because we can, I'm sure all think of instances where that is not the case. You know, it's a, it requires constant work to kind of get right. But I think we start from a much higher baseline in baseball than in other sports. And I also want to say like, that isn't to suggest that there aren't journalists doing good reported work on the NBA or on Mm -hmm. the NFL, like that stuff exists, but you're right that it seems like there is a, a gap between the newsbreaker contingent of that and the, the journalist contingent of that. And that, you know, those sit right next to each other uh, a lot of the time in baseball Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is good. Yeah. Yeah. If it's news that would come out via a press release from the league or the team, then is there much value to it? Obviously, there's an appetite for it because these guys have millions of Twitter followers sure, and, yeah. and high salaries. And obviously, their their outlets see some value in the attention that they bring. But in terms of what we would not know that we know because of them it's it's not that much really we would just have to wait a few minutes more right it's like Woj pre-ESPN breaking all the draft picks before the draft which which happens in MLB too right like Eric will sometimes tweet out who's going to draft whom before the actual pick is made there's not nearly as much attention paid to that because again it's the MLB draft as opposed to the NBA draft like people don't care as much And he's doing it in a chat at Fangraphs and not like on – I mean, he's definitely not doing it on Twitter. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But but yeah, that's just, you know, he he happens to learn about those things. That's not yeah. like the entire value proposition no. of Eric Longenhagen or no. or any other draft expert. It's a very small part of it. So Yeah, no one's no one's ever accused him of like not offering supplemental words. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> he's only in it for the the likes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's the first thing you think of when you think of him, you're like internet celebrity social media personality <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah and and also i mean i guess part of it is is yes the the value of the news breaking or not and you know i there's kind of a an entertaining aspect to their rivalry like look i inhaled both of these long form features on these guys and i'm not even a basketball fan really so like i'm i'm intrigued by all of the backroom dealing and the palace intrigue and everything and so if if effectively wild were a basketball podcast we would probably talk a lot about Woj and Shams and sure, you know, yeah. who's breaking what news or who screwed up or whatever it is, whereas we don't really do that. You know, we, we right. might talk about things that Passon and Rosenthal reported, but we're not like, ooh, he was first on, on this one, you know? Yeah. No one really remembers except those guys and maybe their employers. So it, it's a very different experience of following the news. And, and there's value to the league, potentially, these stories suggest in the fact that these guys are just the pipeline to the fans because Everyone is following them. And so if you want to get 
the word out about something, you you kind of funnel it through through one of them, right? And and they're also just these intermediaries in this weird way for front offices, yeah. like to to get around tampering rules. Like if you can't talk to someone, well, you could reach out to them through Shams or Woj. It's just it's so strange, and I don't know that 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 never happens in baseball, but it just doesn't seem to be nearly as prominent. And and then. There are all the concerns about like a journalist or whatever Shams is being employed by, yep. by FanDuel and you know yep. a sports book. And we talked about this when when there was concern about him tweeting about a draft pick going to one place potentially and then moving the lines on that. And then he turned out to be wrong. But it's like, well, could you game this? And now that he's a New York Times employee, a lot of New York Times employees have been like, hey, this would never fly for us. Like, why why are we letting him? get away with this and maybe it's because yep. he has more Twitter followers than than any right. other Times person and because he kind of, you know, came in through a side entrance via the athletic and everything and, and he has this other deal worked out. So that's a whole other concern that you don't hear about as much with MLB, but you still hear about there are, are still like, you know, sports books trying to get information from MLB newsbreakers and that sort of thing. But, but because... No one wields the the clout that Woj and Shams do. Maybe that that hasn't been as big a deal thus far, or at least it hasn't been known to be. I, if we were uh, NBA analysts, mm-hmm. whoa, what a weird podcast that would be. It would be yeah. so. Would it be different? Is there like a is there an analytics infused with whimsy podcast for for the NBA? Yeah, like, I think there are some. Probably right. I, I see in our Facebook group all the time people requesting like, "What's uh, the closest effectively wild equivalent right. for my sport of choice?" And sometimes there's a perfect parallel, and sometimes not so much. But yeah, we'd yeah. be we'd be talking, we'd be lamenting how the playoffs are too predictable and the favorites always win. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? and <laughs> and we would we would one hundred. Hundred percent, be talking about the the obvious conflicts of interest that exist with yes. with Jams' situation. Like we t- we talked about that on this podcast, and we're not NBA people. Yeah. Like it's a it is a wild problem, and I cannot. I still am floored that it is allowed to persist the way that it is. Like it just seems like such an obvious looming issue. Um, and you know, I think that one of the when you're a newsbreaker, like you have to avoid impropriety, but you are establishing a relationship of trust with your readers. And so you should avoid the appearance of impropriety also. And I would not score that a, a W for him um, mm-hmm. when it comes to the sports book piece of it. Like, I, I don't know why it's not a bigger problem for him than it seems mm-hmm. to be. I yeah. would like, I'm flummoxed. I'm I'm I've been bamboozled. I don't know. I don't understand why this is a thing that is allowed to persist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and by the way, one of the the valuable bits of journalism that Jeff Passan did was write a book called The Arm about Tommy John surgery and elbow injuries and the epidemic of those which uh, is still raging many years after he wrote that book. What did that come out in in 2016, I think? And I saw I saw a tweet this week by John Rogley, who maintains the Tommy John surgery database. Yeah. And 
that is such a valuable resource, and it's it's kind of wild that yeah. we rely on just like independent researchers yeah. to to keep track of those things. It's like yes. sometimes you see like you know crime statistics or gun violence statistics, and yeah. and they're maintained by some media outlet or or some other organization. It's like shouldn't we have an official figure for that? But you know the FBI or the government has, has dragged its feet on compiling and releasing those things. Much lower stakes, <laughs> but but in yeah. baseball, often we're relying on media outlets or individual writers or researchers to maintain these very valuable resources yeah. that we all rely on. And I saw a tweet from John this week about the percentage of MLB pitchers in each season who have had Tommy John surgery. So this is pitchers who pitched in MLB or spent the entire season on the injured list, not including position player pitching. And this year, we reached a new high in the time that John has been tweeting and maintaining this. 2023, 35.3% of all MLB pitchers. So I, that would and include, I think, every, at, yeah, anyone. At like, any, but at any point in their career, not yes. in that calendar year, right? Yeah, yeah not okay. this season, but but just okay. at any point in the past, they've had Tommy Jones. And presumably that includes like, you know, relievers who came up and pitched in one game sure. or something. And so more than a third, 35.3%. Which is up for well, it was it's up from last year. It's up from the year before that. It's been sort of slowly but steadily increasing. So, like in 2017, it was 25.9 percent. Or when Jeff released the arm in 2016, it was 27.4 percent. Now it's 35.3 percent. So it keeps wow. creeping up and up and up. And maybe it's it's possible that the return to play times have been reduced. Have short because sure. you know you have you have. Uh, repairs instead of uh, full reconstructions and you have right. the internal brace so like there have been advances made when it comes to improving the outcomes and shortening the the time to return to the field but man just no sign whatsoever of this epidemic receding like just more and more pitchers and and maybe this is because it's become more common at the minor league level and in amateur ball and so those guys are getting to the big leagues now but sure. yeah, like more than a third of the MLB pitchers who threw a pitch this season, if you could look at the elbow, you would see that telltale scar there. It's just, wow. it's it's kind of incredible. And, and it just reaffirms my belief that this is maybe the biggest issue facing baseball injuries yeah. and pitcher injuries and arm injuries specifically. And yeah. I don't know, maybe despite Brandon Woodruff's injury, maybe shoulder injuries have decreased over this period. You know, some things we've gotten better at preventing the injury or treating it. And then it just moves down to the weak point in the kinetic chain and it's the UCL and there's only so much you can do about that. But boy, it's just more and more every year, just the rising tide of TJs. Yeah, it's a real it's a real problem. Your Shams isn't writing that book. <laughs> Probably Woj not. isn't writing that book. I don't mean to pick on Shams just uh, amongst the two of them, but like yeah. he's the one with the gambling thing, so that's mm -hmm. why he got a little more attention. Yes. Do you have time for <sighs> one email? Or yes, have I have time for, okay. but only, only one. one. Yes, you've got to go to, to a workout day at Chase. All right. Yeah. Jonathan says, if all regular season series were like playoff series, how would baseball be different? What if oh. the series was over once a team had won the series? So Ooh. for a, a four-game series, if a team wins the first three, series is over, and both teams get a day off before the next series starts. 
Would the team be missing too many games at the end of the year? Would the schedule have to be adjusted to account for missed games? Could you have a a live schedule, the the backfilled games that were missed so that teams still played 162 and the pitcher-catcher battery still got all of their plate appearances? Everyone still qualified with so many counting stats involved. I imagine this would overcomplicate the schedule. What would the benefits be for winning a series since both teams would still get a day off? How would a season look if teams had stats for series wins and losses? That would be a more fluid way to transition into the postseason since teams would be playing this style of baseball all season long. Teams with the best series win-loss records would advance to the postseason. Perhaps their overall win-loss record could act as tiebreakers. Even better, what if they still played all of the 162 games but the standings were made by series win-loss rather than total win-loss? The schedule would have to be adjusted to convert four-game series into five-game series, but this would reduce the amount of traveling overall and would make for some interesting adjustments and strategy that, again, would be more like postseason baseball. And he says, I'd be very interested in watching a season of baseball like this. So would you? And this this feels like a, if baseball were different, how different would it be? It feels like it'd be pretty different if, if this were put into place. It would be so different. It yeah. would be... I mean, we'd have to get tiebreaker games back, I guess, because, mm-hmm. you know, who would be able to just look at a record and say, oh, yeah, that guy. It would be so weird. We couldn't yeah. do it. The teams would play different amounts of games. They'd play different numbers of games. And, like, oh, it in, would, yeah, it would be, be a total mess. It would be a, it would be a mess. <laughs> yeah. For the stats, it would be a, just a nightmare. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> just like... How would we... Oh. Yeah. You'd have to lower, I guess, the qualifying thresholds, but even then... Even then? Yeah, there'd be such disparities, probably, in just the number of team games played. I was I was going to say, I mean, would would the better teams... I, I guess, like, because the, the really good teams and the really terrible teams probably would play fewer games than kind of the middle-of-the-pack teams, right? Because, like, if you're sweeping or getting swept a lot or or I mean would we even call it sweep we'd have to have that conversation again that we just had for the postseason but but if you were like losing or winning the first two of a three game series as opposed to splitting them more often right. you just have fewer games played total so like Oh, man, but the samples would all be smaller, obviously, so we'd have less confidence in, in any of the results and true talent estimates would be hazier. And yeah, you wouldn't have to worry about like people complaining about layoffs in the postseason because that would just be a constant bug or feature of the schedule. So you'd have to uh, maybe you could like do some prorating or extrapolating or adjust like you know per x games all the you'd compare the rate stats or something because it would just be so hard to account for. Uh, uh, yeah, and- it would be a mess because like we 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 intentionally when we're evaluating guys' careers like we. We, it's not that we don't think about what they did in the postseason, but when we talk about like their stats, we we mean the regular season, and we sit and we we pick that because they all play. In a, in in theory, they have the opportunity to play the same number of games, and I know they don't all play the same number of games because you know the guys get hurt, guys get rest, guys are starters, guys are relievers, you know, guys are whatever. But like they have the opportunity the, to play. Mm-hmm. A set number of games. And then the postseason is its own special separate thing that we are like, that's over there. And then if you were to, and they wouldn't play all the games. And how would poor, can you imagine poor Jay Jaffe trying to, having to 
construct a Hall of Fame case <laughs> on guys who've played here and there, cats and dogs living together. It'd be a total. It would be a, such a mess. It would be a total mess. Yeah, and there'd just be a lot less baseball, which There'd would be, be so bad. much less baseball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the feature of the regular season for a lot of people is that it's a constant. It's always there. So it would be very annoying and deflating. You'd be happy if your team won the series and then got to take a day off and rest and recuperate, but then you don't get to watch a game that day. So that stinks, and you wouldn't be able to plan around it just it'd be bad for attendance like not only would there be fewer total games I, I guess the individual games might be better attended on average but but you couldn't plan it you couldn't make plans like months in advance and say hey i'm gonna get tickets to this game i guess you could if it were the first or second game of the series or something but you could never bank on going to a, a game after that because it just might not be played at all and right. imagine the headaches for the team when it comes to traveling. Yeah, like, I was going to say the poor traveling secretary. Yeah. Underappreciated in our time and like probably wanting to quit in the time being proposed here. Yeah, I, I guess they could make the same plans. And then if you don't have to play a game, you just have have a day off in that city on that day. Right. You just, you know, you stay in the same hotel. You just don't travel until you were originally scheduled to travel. But but if you were a player and you had an extra off day and let's say you had a homestand coming up, you'd probably want to go home and get started right. on that. So maybe with, with charters, if you're just going home, you could do that if you don't have hotels booked. Oh, man, what a <laughs> what a mess that would be. And then schedule-wise, yeah, like – I guess there'd be the question of does it actually hurt you to have too many off days if it's just so sporadic and stop and start? Oh, no, like, we'd have rest discourse again. So much, yeah. And like, do you do you actually want to to end the series early or do you want to? Because man, I, and then could you count on like you couldn't ever count on not having to play a game but it would affect how you used your your pitchers and your relievers and everything like if you knew or you thought if you're if you won the first game of a three game series and you're trying to finish off the second one then you'd know like hey if we win this one we don't have to play we get an off day the next day so i can use all my good bullpen guys now and not hold them in reserve or like do you maybe starting rotations would be more fluid and, and flexible than they are currently because they kind of used to be in earlier eras of baseball so maybe you bring that back a little bit oof there'd be so many headaches just this would be kind of chaos and i don't think it would be better because it would just be a lot less baseball and i'm not in favor of that but i guess right. there would be some interesting strategic tactical considerations potentially but on every other level it would just be a, a total hassle not to be, be able to hassle. <laughs> depend it would be a on, mess yeah yeah no. no thank you yeah no thank you yeah Okay. <laughs> Guess we, I think we've answered a question about like what if series were decided by run differential in the series as opposed to do you win and lose each individual but like cumulative do you outscore your opponent in that series how would that change things I think we've done that one but this is oh, this is this is a whole different ball of wax so yeah I don't think so <laughs> but thanks for the question Jonathan. <laughs> 
All right, before we leave you today, we have one more treat for you. I hope it'll be a treat. It's a future blast from the year 2074. It's been a while since we've done one of these. We stopped them as an everyday feature after episode 2060, but we mentioned that we might try it again in some form. Some people have been asking whether the future blast would be back. The future blast from the past, if that makes any sense, were short little dispatches from the year that coincided with the episode number, relating a little information about what's going on in baseball in the world. In that year in this timeline, but this one will be a bit different. So the one we're sharing with you today is more of a short story produced in the style of a radio play, an old school serialized audio drama. The story is co-written by our regular Future Blaster, Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the Dean of Science Fiction Baseball. It is also co-written by Alan Smale, who is an accomplished and prolific science fiction author in his own right, as well as an astrophysicist and astronomer. It's about seven or eight minutes long. It's called Alien Baseball, and it goes a little something like this. St. Louis, Missouri, November 2074. It was another balmy November night in St. Louis, where the Cardinals were holding on to a one-run lead in the top of the seventh in the sixth game of the World Series. The London Monarchs had their designated runner on first, replacing the lumbering Jackie Stewart, who, enhanced or not, could get only a single out of the line drive to the corner and right. The runner was Letitia Lindsay, the Super Scott, the holder of the world record time in the 100-meter dash in the Canberra Olympics, where she broke the 10-second barrier with that amazing 9.95. She was taking a long lead off first and would no doubt be heading to second as soon as Cardinals reliever Hector Clark threw another 110-mile-an-hour fastball homeward. Lindsay had stolen 154 bases in the regular season, despite missing a month participating in the Olympics and bringing home the gold for Scotland. She was looking to add another theft or two here to her postseason tally of nine steals. In deep space, approaching Amuamua. Space Force Roamer pilot James Ollie Olson was watching as that first pitch came in and Lindsay stole second. Late jump, close call, but safe. Ollie Olson and his crew were making a close call now, too, as they approached Oumuamua, the strange visiting rock that had first visited the solar system in 2017 and then gone on its way. There'd been no way to visit the rock back then. Now there was. Ollie clicked off the video and went to audio only. He needed to keep his eye on the target for the next little while. There were gullible people back home on Earth and the moon who thought this ugly hunk of rock was an alien visitor. Oh, sure, he muttered. If I was going to build an alien vessel, That's exactly what it would look like. The cigar-shaped interstellar rock tumbled end over end just a click ahead of them. The elongated asteroid was a reddish color, clearly rocky, and about 500 meters long and a little under 100 meters across. Though, you know... His co-pilot, Lily Mae Lin, checked her calculator. If that sucker really was chock full of aliens, that rotation rate would give it a close to 1G Earth normal gravity at the ends. Randy Garrett, the navigator, snorted. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And my Aunt Minnie pitched a perfect game for the Yankees, right? She made the big club for a cup of coffee, Randy, said Ollie. I saw her pitch twice in relief during that pennant race of 2060. She had pretty good stuff, my friend. Yeah, yeah, said Randy. I know. I heard about it all the damn time. She gets better every telling, and that's my point. They moved closer to the tumbling rock. Amuamua certainly dwarfed their spacecraft. Space Force Roamer 14 was a scout vessel barely 30 meters long, with a crew of three. 
Usual roamer duty involved fixing satellites, cleaning up space junk, and puttering around outside Island 2, the space habitat at the Earth-Moon Lagrange point, equally distant from each. Occasionally, they'd check out small asteroids for potential mining. But today, SFR-14 was coming to take a look at this mysterious visitor, rendezvous with it at its spin axis, and grab a couple of surface samples for science and a whole bunch of photos for the world media. The target was a little unusual, but matching trajectory and spin rate for the encounter was typical slow, deliberate work of a type they'd done dozens of times before. Not exactly rocket science, even though it was, technically. Ollie turned off the game to concentrate on his approach. They needed to touch down on that rock long enough to do a scoop and run. For a few seconds, he forgot about the ball game back on Earth. Let her steal all the bases she wants, he said, mostly to himself, though they could all hear him. What the... said Lily. Wait a second, Ollie. That rock is slowing down. Ollie eyed the approaching space rock. Doesn't look like... Spinning down, she said. I'm positive. Incongruously, Ollie thought of a curveball, but by now he could see it was true. That end-over-end motion was nowhere near as brisk as it had been just moments before. Uh, outgassing? Like comets do? Must be. And there she goes. Randy Garrett added, leaning back in a luxurious stretch. Lindsay swiping third, out though this time, and the inning. Lily suddenly sat forward. Uh, incoming radio message. Island 2? The space habitat they'd launched from three days before. Not Island 2. Lily pushed buttons. The loudspeaker boomed. Greetings, people of Earth. A pause, and then in a much lighter tone. I've waited to say that for so long. And behind these words, the SFR-14 crew heard the unmistakable tune of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Mei Ling stabbed more buttons. Oh, come on. Which one of you jokers? It's coming from the rock, Garrett said. It is not, said Lily. Cannot be. They all looked at Garrett suspiciously. He raised his hands. Okay, swear to God, I am not doing this. Olsen shook his head. (sighs) Junior, talk to me. Junior, their AI co-pilot who'd been quiet to this point, spoke up. The signal is coming from the rock, but the background noise is from the game on Earth. Uh, people of Earth? Came the voice over the loudspeaker again, sounding a little plaintive. Olsen flipped the push to talk on his console. Uh, yeah, hi. Who's this? Good, good. Hello, people of Earth. I am Felix. Felix? Okay, then. Olsen took his finger off the button. I don't buy this for a second. Push to talk again. So, uh, Felix... Do you seriously expect us to believe you're aboard Oumuamua? Yes, yes, the traveler you call Oumuamua. I am within, but the game is about to begin again. I will make ready here all. You will park your craft between the lights, yes? And then we will each other greet as friends, yes? No time lag, said Meilin, sotto voce. The signal is local. In the background, behind Felix's voice, they could hear commentators from Redbird Field as the seventh inning recommenced. Olsen shook his head. Felix, you're following the game? Of course. The loudspeaker went dead, and two red lights lit up on Oumuamua, about three quarters of the way from its center to its far end. And in the next few moments, Oumuamua came to a complete stop relative to SFR-14. Wow. Lily Mailing said inadequately. Ali Olsen sat up straight. Guys, this is now a first contact situation. He swallowed. Did I really just say that out loud? Olsen used the last two innings to his advantage. His quick call back to Island 2 was met with incredulity. Aliens? Right. Olsen asked if he should abort, back off, await a larger contingent of, oh, politicians or whatever? Negatory, said Island 2 Control. Bring us back unequivocal evidence of aliens, and then we'll talk. 
Until then, let's keep this to ourselves. And also, double-check your environmental control readings and do immediate medical checks on one another. Olsen chose not to take that last advice. He was too busy maneuvering SFR-14 in between the red lights and into dock in a steel-lined tunnel with a huge, rubbery-looking far wall. It was obviously a far-from-natural berth. Ollie and his crew watched through the cockpit windshield as that rubbery mass reached out to grab the roamer and sucked it into a firm grip. In the top porthole, they could see a connector coming down to latch onto their top hatch. Come on! He heard through his earpiece. Get the bat off your shoulder! Ollie looked at Lily and Randy. They looked back. They stood up. Earth's normal gravity here? Go figure. Ollie reached up to undog the hatch. Play ball. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all involved, including Rick Wilbur and Alan Smale, who wrote it. Shane McKeon, our producer, who produced it and also voiced James Ollie Olson. Thanks to Effectively Wild listeners, Patreon supporters, and Twins fans, Chris Hannell and Amy Lee for voicing Randy Garrett and Lily Mae Lynn, respectively. And if you recognized Felix, that mysterious voice over the loudspeaker, that was Fangraph's own Dan Simborski. Thank you, Dan. And I, of course, was your humble narrator. This was somewhat labor-intensive to write and record and produce. So if you'd like to hear more like it, please let us know. If not, please let us know that too. Maybe we will continue to do these sporadically, extend the story into the future, but it's up to you and your interest level. So we look forward to your feedback. After recorded on Wednesday, the Astros beat the Rangers 8-5. to A little bit more of a high-scoring effort by both teams at least, though still no lead changes. Max Scherzer, not so great. Astros offense, very good, even with Jordan getting robbed of a home run. And by the way, there was a pitch clock violation. John Gray was called for one, which takes us up to 5 in 27 postseason games, or 0.19 per game, roughly. Still low relative to the regular season. We'll have more to say about that series and the NLCS next time. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. AI, unless that's a lowercase L, not an uppercase I, Tom M, Maxwell Elkus, Sarah, and MCS. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, access to playoff live streams, one of which is still ahead this month, access to monthly bonus episodes, discounts on merch and ad-free Fancrafts memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but you don't have to be a Patreon supporter to contact us via email. Send us your questions and comments at podcast.fancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for extra editing and production assistance today. We will be back to talk to you a little later this week. Can you effectively sort through Stats and players in your head Isn't it wild to repeat them To all of your indifferent family and friends They'll keep you company, they'll keep you sane On a long bike ride or a slow work day Megan Ben waxing about a playoff race. Who's bats high?